I think we can get started. We have everyone in, in, into the room now and more people are coming in, but they'll arrive as, as we go. Hello, I'd like to welcome you all to the first lecture in our series, which is sponsored by a Cheryl K. Coleman and Margaret E. Gateau professorship at the Oregon Humanities Center. The professorship is providing enrichment opportunities for my course about ancient Jewish art and architecture, and I'd like to thank the Oregon Humanities Center for its support. I can think of no better person to start us off. Eric Gruen is Gladys Rehard Wood Professor Emeritus of History and Classics at the University of California at Berkeley. He has written numerous books about Hellenistic history, Roman history, and the Jews of the Greco-Roman world, including his most recent books, Rethinking the Other in Antiquity, Constructs of Identity in Hellenistic Judaism, and Ethnicity in the Ancient World, Did It Matter? He is the recipient of many honors and awards. I'll name just a few. He has been elected to the American Philosophical Society and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. The Society for Classical Studies named a prize for graduate students in his honor, and he was awarded the Austrian Cross of Honor for Arts and Letters. He also was a beloved professor who has served on the dissertation committees of over 100 students, including mine. He's been a wonderful mentor and friend over the years, and I am delighted that we will hear him give today's lecture entitled Displaced in Diaspora, Jewish Communities in the Greco-Roman World. I will turn it now over to Professor Gruen. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, that's extremely kind of you. And I'm delighted to be a participant in this operation. I think it's a, a wonderful new development, as I understand it, uh, at the University of Oregon. This course of Chris's on uh, ancient Jewish art and architecture, and I'm particularly honored to be one uh, to be the first speaker, especially since you have re a real roster of stars to follow this one. Uh, that's a particular distinction and also a somewhat uh, daunting prospect uh, to herald the coming of some real uh, powerful speakers who will uh, succeed me over the next few weeks. Um, I'm, as I understand it, I will be speaking for uh, 50, 55 minutes or so, and then there will be plenty of time for questions, uh, um, doubts, skeptical comments, and or even denunciations. But I will try to arm myself in advance to deal with some at least of them. Now, uh, title of the talk is Displaced in Diaspora with a question mark, Jewish communities in the Greco-Roman world. Were they displaced in the diaspora? Now, the Jews of antiquity were certainly not homebodies. They could be found in communities all over the Mediterranean and the Near East, from Spain and North Africa, all the way to Babylon and Iran. The Jewish philosopher Philo, writing in the early first century CE, he even claimed that Jerusalem is not only the mother city of Judea, but the mother city of Jews everywhere, offering, as he does, a long list of dwelling places, starting with the neighboring areas of Phoenicia, Syria, Egypt, proceeding to most of the regions of Asia Minor, then all over Greece and the Aegean Islands, 
beyond the Euphrates to Babylon and the former satrapies of the Persian Empire. And then Philo sums it all up by, by affirming that the Jews located themselves in every part of the inhabited world. That's a bit of an exaggeration to be sure, but we'll let that pass. It's not pure fantasy. The passage indicates clearly enough that the breadth of the Jewish diaspora had reached very sizable proportions. And it certainly far outstripped the number of Jews who resided in Judea and its surroundings. Given that, is it reasonable to characterize so many Jews living in communities well outside their homeland as displaced refugees? Now, almost all of these communities were in the orbit of Greek culture and of Roman authority. Jews were everywhere a minority, that is true. And the levers of power were usually well outside their reach. But does this mean that they were a marginalized group in every location, perched on a precarious periphery? Well, we need to ask just how they got there in the first place. The idea that Jews were regularly expelled or exiled forced out of homes, compelled to seek refuge in alien lands, that idea might seem logical, maybe even inevitable. In fact, it's unsupportable. We have little or no evidence to suggest anything of the sort. Yes, you might cite, as people always do, the Roman destruction of Jerusalem and the hall of Jewish war captives in 70 CE, and cite that as a kind of touchstone, but it won't do because Jews were in the diaspora in substantial numbers for centuries before. They were not just scattered after 70 CE, far from it. So why were they there in the diaspora? That's where our evidence fails us. Uh, it's a source of frustration familiar to all ancient historians or anybody working on the ancient world. We rarely get any notice of motives that may have spurred Jews to settle abroad. Our sources, after all, confine themselves largely to war, politics, major public events, but they record no mass exodus of Jews anywhere. Now, we almost never get a glimpse of the reasons why individual Jews or Jewish families might have had for leaving their homeland and moving elsewhere. There was a variety of purposes, no doubt, perfectly plausible ones that we can conjecture, perhaps to gain employment in a variety of occupations, to profit from commercial opportunities, to escape the effects of overpopulation or the ravages of war, or to lift their social status to, or to rejoin families, to obtain land, and generally to better their circumstances. Now, some, it is true, served, uh, as we know, uh, as uh, mercenary soldiers. And a mercenary soldier can always suffer, cap uh, uh, pick the wrong side perhaps, suffer captive uh, capture and then end up in unanticipated places. And this may have happened to some Jews, but there can be no question that voluntary migration for whatever reasons 
accounted for vastly more diaspora Jews than did any coerced displacement. Now, there is an old uh, adage that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. All historians face that particular issue. But in this case, there is a most striking absence that needs to be noticed and that is really quite revealing. And that is that no Jewish writer or intellectual to our knowledge ever wrote a treatise on diaspora. Nor do we have hints that anybody ever reflected upon it or sought to address it as a problem. The word diaspora is itself a Greek one, almost always found incidentally in a verbal form, diaspero, to scatter, but not or almost never as a noun, that is as a condition of existence. Nowhere does it serve to translate the Hebrew galut or gola with a negative connotation of exile. So Jewish thinkers evidently didn't feel an obligation to rationalize or justify or apologize for the fact that they were living elsewhere than in Judea. Nobody thought it relevant to construct a theory of diaspora. All of which suggests that their situation didn't constitute an issue that needed to be accounted for, let alone a source of anguish. Now we, of course, ask the questions, how did they get on when they were there? How far were they integrated into or excluded from the institutions and activities of their new communities? Were they reckoned as refugees, unwelcome, or even tolerated, but as asylum seekers? Did they belong? But such questions didn't seem to bother them. They felt no call to compose a theory of diaspora. Indeed, and this is significant, I think, they never described themselves as members of a diaspora. Now this raises the question of relations with the homeland or attitudes toward the homeland. Did diaspora Jews consider themselves temporarily or perhaps even permanently locked into a condition of exile that left them longing for a return to the true source of their being? Now in this matter too, there's a notable dearth of deliberation by the Jews. They don't appear to have had a desperate yearning for a return to a place of origin that defined their identity. A hankering after the homeland is surprisingly lacking in the literature. Now that is not to say uh, that all connection was lost or forgotten, far from it. Jews all over the Mediterranean and beyond were expected to pay an annual tribute to the temple in Jerusalem, thereby asserting 
both in symbolic and in uh, tangible form, their allegiance to the holy center of Jewish existence. Now they, or at least those who could afford it, also conducted pilgrimages to Jerusalem. How frequently, how regularly, we can't really say. But we do know that when pilgrimages occurred, usually at times of sacred holidays or festivals, they could draw extensive crowds. And whatever the numbers, the practice alone tells a very important tale. It emblematized the deep linkage between diaspora and fatherland without in any way diminishing the attachment to the land in which one now dwelt. This uh, sense of dual loyalty, uncomplicated, taken for granted, uncommon, uncommented upon, at least in principle, it did receive memorable expression in the works of Philo, the Jewish uh, philosopher from Alexandria. As he put it, the Jews considered Jerusalem as their metropolis, their mother city. But the states in which they actually lived and indeed in which their fathers, grandfathers or distant ancestors had lived, those they considered their patrides their native lands. And they found no inconsistency and no tension in holding both those views. Now, leaving aside the ruminations of the intellectuals, what do we actually know about the lives and experiences of Jews who dwelled in the scattered and diverse communities of the Greco-Roman world? What do we actually know? All too little, but perhaps enough just to draw some inferences, to piece together a few of the fragments that we do have, fragments of, the, of a much larger mosaic, uh, the whole of which will always be beyond our grasp. Jews tended to congregate. They acquired the reputation of self-segregation in the diaspora communities in which they settled. And that reputation was no doubt deserved. They were most comfortable with their own co-religionists. They tended to cluster in certain areas. And that practice, after all, allowed them to preserve traditions and to promote a sense of collective identity in new settings. But one ought not to conjure up visions of Jews huddled in dismal and forlorn ghettos, confined and restricted by the authorities, that would be deeply inaccurate. There's one institution that decisively refutes that sort of picture, the synagogue. Synagogue turns up in remarkably widespread and diverse places. We have record of them from literary texts, from inscriptions, and indeed from archaeology that has revealed remains of some of the actual structures. The earliest references to them go back all the way to the 6th century BCE in Egypt. 
where a large dossier of papyri discloses the existence of a Jewish military colony at Elephantine in Upper Egypt, which among other things um, included a temple of Yahweh and uh, the celebration of the Passover. And Jewish communities had established themselves in Middle Egypt already by the third century, as we know from inscriptions that record dedications of synagogues made by Jews honoring the, the uh, ruling family of the Ptolemies. And there's comparable language that appears in various dedications to the Ptolemies in synagogues of Lower Egypt in the second century. We also know that numerous synagogues rose in Alexandria, home to a very large community of Jews in Egypt. And Egypt was not alone. We know of synagogues in Antioch and Damascus in Syria, in Cyrene in North Africa, in various Greek cities of Asia Minor that gained acknowledgement from Rome to conduct their activities, including the construction of synagogues. And where, of course, St. Paul and his colleagues visited to solicit conversations and conversions to their new sect. We have epigraphic evidence that further reveals Jewish communities with synagogues in cities on the shores of the Black Sea. And they didn't neglect the West either. Jews, in fact, had synagogues in Rome, sanctioned by the Emperor Augustus. Funerary epitaphs from the Jewish catacombs in Rome uh, show that at least 11 synagogues existed in the city by the third century CE. And the spade has unearthed yet another one, not in Rome itself, but in Rome's own harbor city of Ostia. And in some ways most striking perhaps, the evidence from the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that the Jews were resident on the Greek island of Delos in the Aegean. And archaeologists have uncovered a structure that can reasonably there, that can reasonably be identified as a synagogue. Now that's really worth notice because Delos was a holy site for the Greeks. It was the birthplace of Apollo. It was a locale for Greek pilgrimage. It was a major commercial center for the Mediterranean. The fact that Jews dwelt and possessed a communal sanctuary on that sacred isle is powerful testimony for their welcome and their acceptance, even in a key center of pagan religion. And synagogues serve more purposes than just houses of worship. We have evidence from scattered sources that indicate that they could provide means for a whole range of social and educational activities, including study of the scriptures, instruction of the young, celebration of festivals, communal dining, neighborhood meetings, adjudication of disputes, and even the maintenance of the community's archives. Now, not, all, not that all synagogues uh, performed all of those functions, given the, the diversity of vocations, we can infer that local practices and needs determine decisions as to what would take place at any individual site. But what stands out in all of this is the fact that synagogues 
were built with frequency and without resistance, in fact, some of them at least, received patronage and financial support from wealthy non-Jews. Now, the extensive spread of the synagogue and the largely laissez-faire attitude of Greek and Roman authorities towards their operation, it speaks eloquently to the comfort level of Jews in their own institutions in the diaspora. And one can go beyond just the synagogue. In some places, at least, Jews set up governing bodies of their own. The Greek geographer, Strabo, who had no ax to grind for Jews, for certain, he tells us that the Jewish community of Alexandria had an official with the title of ethnot who governed them, who oversaw contracts and decrees, who decided disputes. At Sardis in Asia Minor, Jews we know had a governing body, a synodos, that exercised oversight and adjudication within their ranks. And we have documentary evidence from the city of Berenike in, in Cyrene, which records decisions that were made by the politiuma, which is evidently the corporate political entity of the Jewish community there. And more recently, a remarkable and invaluable cachet of papyri from Heracleopolis in Middle Egypt was discovered just a couple of decades or so ago. And it disclosed details of a sort that we had never had before. Details of the workings of a Jewish polytuma in that city. The documents record an officialdom that is headed by a polytarch together with other officials who adjudicated disputes within the community and occasionally even disputes between Jews and Gentiles. That's a remarkable bit of evidence for the stature of Jews in that city. Self-governing institutions, uh, self-governing Jewish institutions did exist and were evidently sanctioned by the powers that be in various cities of the Greco-Roman world. Now, of course, the paltry evidence that we have can't prove that such institutions existed in every city or even in many cities. Circumstances differed widely in these multifarious communities. But even our fragmentary testimony suggests significant self-governance within Jewish society. Okay, so far so good. Jews could, at least up to a point, run their own show. But what part, if any, did Jews play in the larger civic world of Greco-Roman society? Were they frozen out of the organs of power and social prestige? Were they dependent upon the grace and generosity of their betters? Well, here again, we have to grasp after the straws of fragmentary and inadequate testimony, even less satisfactory than what I've been discussing so far. But we work with what we have and we light a few candles rather than curse the dark. And we have a small window on the Jews of Alexandria. 
they felt free to call themselves Alexandrians. So the Greeks in the city who ran it didn't have a monopoly on that term. Now this we learned from the Jewish sources, Philo and Josephus. But we also learn from the Greek intellectual Strabo, as I've mentioned, the Jews possessed a political structure in which the chief magistrate ha had in Strabo's rather interesting formulation, they had something less than full autonomy. Now the implication there seems to be that in addition to governing their internal affairs, the Jews did have some participation in the larger Alexandrian entity, even though they didn't have full status in it. This ambiguous situation is also echoed by other texts that make reference to a Jewish politeia, or presumably, which presumably means Jewish political rights of some sort, and indeed acknowledge the Jewish inhabitants of Greek cities generally, not only in Alexandria, could be described interestingly as eudaioi politai. Now, politai usually means citizens. The language here, however, is non-technical and needn't signify that the Jews were citizens in the fullest sense of the term. But it does show at least, and quite revealingly so, that eudaioi, Jews, did enjoy civic privileges of some sort that were recognized by the authorities. The Roman Emperor Augustus reinforced that status quite explicitly. He referred to them as citizens of the Alexandrians. He did that on a bronze stele that was publicly displayed and thus uh, explicitly guaranteed Jewish claims to civic rights. Now just exactly what citizens of the Alexandrians means, it's also a non-technical phrase, certainly. We don't know. But it does plainly indicate an acknowledged role of some sort in the political process of the city. Philo underscores that fact when he affirms that Alexandrian Jews, he said, shared in political rights. So although we lack precise data and cannot pin down exactly what this means, the Jews clearly had some purchase on civic prerogatives in Alexandria and not in Alexandria alone. We have evidence of Jews as part of the citizenry, at least to some degree, in Antioch. Josephus reports, perhaps not with complete objectivity, Josephus never writes with complete objectivity, but he writes that the Jews enjoyed politeia, dating back to the founding of the city of Antioch by the Hellenistic dynasty of the Seleucids. And he says it was a status equivalent to that of the Greeks and the Macedonians who were dwelling there. Now, we don't have to buy Josephus's date for the origins of Jewish privileges. He says it happened right from the founding of the city. We don't have to buy his claim that the, those privileges were equal to those of the Greek settlers. But I don't think we can dismiss the report as pure fiction. Jews evidently enjoyed some place in the political scene at Antioch under both the Seleucids and the Roman Empire when Josephus was right. And the same holds for the Anatolian city of Sardis. 
for which documents that Josephus supplies refer to Jewish residents as politai. Here again, the term needn't mean citizens in the fullest sense. He issues a qualifying statement and says that they were katoikontes, uh, which might indicate some intermediate status for them. But in any case, a term like politai should certainly imply at the very least that the Jews had some role in the civic structure of Sardis and were not merely representatives of their own self-contained entity. So, as is clear from all of this, any reconstruction of Jewish participation in the public activities of the cities has to be a hit or miss proposition. You have to put it together from scraps and from a few locations, whereas we must admit the vast bulk of Jewish settlements in the diaspora do not speak to us at all. We have no way of knowing how, how representative these individual examples that I've been discussing are. So all of our conclusions have to be tentative. The evidence I would say is evocative rather than definitive. But it does give us a sense that the Jews could, and in some places certainly did, have a part to play in civic society beyond any isolated or segregated commune. And another point deserves emphasis here, one that you might not have anticipated. Jews were eligible for Roman citizenship. Now, Paul, of course, Jew from Tarsus is the most obvious example, the most familiar example, but he was far from alone. We know that Roman officials who were responsible for recruiting soldiers for the army in Asia Minor during the civil war between Caesar and Pompey, we know that they explicitly exempted Jews who were Roman citizens from conscription. The decrees that were issued by the officers express, of course, noble, admirable sentiments of that they were respecting Jewish religious feelings and the practice of their traditional rights that may or may not be window dressing put on it by Josephus. Because I suspect the Romans were not all that eager to recruit Jews into the army anyway. After all, the Jews observed the Sabbath and they had various practices that would make them uh, uh, inconvenient as recruitments for the Roman army. But that doesn't affect the main point that I wanna make here. And that is that there were Jews in Asia Minor who held Roman citizenship and enough of them to make the granting of exceptions from military service a meaningful act. Now equally significant is the evidence on the Jewish community in Rome itself. It constituted a sufficiently substantial number to support gatherings that could put pressure on the government and could lobby for policies that affected their community. Now, how many of those who engaged in the demonstrations and vocifer vociferously expressed their wishes, um, how many of those Jews were Roman citizens, we don't know. But the number was not trivial. It's probable that many Jewish families in Rome stemmed originally from war captives, mercenaries who had served in the armies of Rome's enemies in the East and who had been brought to Italy as slaves. That's true. 
but they were not locked into that situation for good. Rome took pride in a quite remarkable policy. And that is that any slaves who were manumitted by their owners automatically became Roman citizens. And the freedmen played a significant role in Roman society, even though not at the most upper levels, but they were certainly meaningful members of its citizenry. And Jews were obviously among the beneficiaries of that policy. And when they acted collectively, as they occasionally did, they could have an impact on public events. We have several instances of that. The privileges that were accorded by citizenship, are, especially in the Jewish case, are very nicely illustrated by an episode in the reign of Augustus. When monthly distributions of grain to the needy took place, if they happened to take place on the Sabbath, Many Jews couldn't take advantage of that bounty. They had to honor the Sabbath. And some must have brought this uh, issue to the attention of the authority because Augustus intervened and directed that when allocations of grain were scheduled on the Sabbath, the officials in charge should reserve a portion of that grain for the following day so that Jews could have access to it. Now that report, which comes from Philo, was in his view at least designed to show the generosity and the sensibility of the emperor. But it inadvertently attests to a very important truth. Because as we know from other sources, recipients of the grain distribution in Rome had to be Roman citizens. In other words, many Jews in Rome, even those of slender means, Roman citizens. Okay, Jews, at least in some places, had civic privileges, even citizenship, could have an impact on the public stage. But what about the realm of high culture? Did they have access to the upper echelons of the educated intelligentsia? Or was such a rarefied realm closed to them? The place I look for an answer here is the gymnasium. That institution represented the capstone of higher education in Greek cities everywhere around the Mediterranean. And it persisted for the Greek elite well into the period of the Roman Empire. It was a prime mark of social prestige and it was an indispensable entrance into the elevated ranks of the Hellenic cultural world. Participants in the gymnasium came from the best families and entered as youths, of course, only boys. They entered as youths into the core of the Ephes, the blue bloods who would be trained for leadership in the city. Now, this would hardly be a place where you'd expect to find any Jews. And indeed, there were surely not many. But the gymnasium was not an altogether closed shop. We have the good fortune to possess numerous inscriptions that record the names of those who were enrolled as Ephedes in various gymnasia. And surprisingly, Jews do occasionally turn up on these lists. 
The two Ephebic lists from Cyrene, for example, one from the late first century BCE, one from the early first century CE, it contained the names of some participants in the gymnasium who are unmistakably Jewish. Judas, Eleazar, and Jesus, and several others that could easily be Jewish, uh, Jews as well. Judas, Theophilus, and Dosithius, names that look decidedly Jewish from what we know from other Jewish inscriptions. And there are several other instances that can be cited. So Jews may not, I don't want to suggest that Jews enter the ranks of the F of eight in notable numbers, but they were clearly not excluded. And a gymnasium education was a prerequisite to acceptance in the tiers of the intelligentsia. Some Jews certainly took advantage. Jews with a gymnasium education had a wealth of learning at their disposal, and some certainly made the most of it. Jews produced a plethora of literary works in just about every genre that the Greeks had made their own. Epic, tragedy, philosophy, historiography, didactic poetry, even the novel. We have the names of many Jewish authors of such works, even if we don't have many of the works themselves preserved. But they evidently commanded, or some, commanded the whole range of Hellenic intellectual traditions and were thus deeply engaged in that larger cultural world. But there's a conspicuous aspect of that engagement that deserves to be emphasized. Jewish intellectuals and writers knew their Homer, their Aeschylus, their Plato, their Herodotus, but they didn't write about the same subjects as their Greek predecessors did. No Jewish author, to our knowledge, took on the legends of the Trojan War or the labors of Heracles or the tragedy of Agamemnon or the contests of Greeks and Persians. Their subjects were the Hebrew patriarchs the tales of biblical figures like Joseph, or the deeds of Moses, or the kings of Judah. The Jewish playwright Ezekiel, for instance, produced a wholesale drama on the model of Aeschylus, but its topic was the exodus of the Jews from Egypt. And we know of a Jewish poet named Theodotus, who wrote in Homeric examiners, so was well-versed in Greek literary style. And he produced an entire epic that dealt at least with the life of Jacob, even though we have only fragments of it, and it was much bigger than that. We know of an inventive novelist, whose name we don't know, but who produced an absorbing novel or novella on the relationship between Joseph and Azenith, which is based on just a single phrase or sentence in the book of Genesis, but was transformed into a wholesale novella by this author. We also have the very creative historian, Artapanus, who produced a treatise that has Moses as a military hero who defeated Ethiopians and who brought culture to the Egyptians. In fact, he even has Moses introduce animal worship to the Egyptians and invent the hieroglyphics of the Egyptians. So Hellenistic Jewish authors ran the gamut from tragic drama 
to fanciful historiography. The restriction of their works to traditions that were growing, that had grown out of the Bible and pr thus promoting the celebrated figures from their own ancestral past, this reinforced their sense of self-esteem, stressed the ongoing history of the nation. But this was more than a tightly enclosed community that was isolated from its uh, cultural surroundings. These compositions required a deep familiarity with Hellenic literature, literary forms, genres, and the nuances of the Greek language. They all wrote in Greek. And this must, could only have come uh, from a gymnasium education and a thorough engagement with the cultural currents of, the, of their contemporaries, both Jew and Gentile. So the evidence, slim as it is, points to parallel engagements of the Jewish intellectual intelligentsia and the cultural elite of Hellenic society in the diaspora. But can we take this, <clears throat> we take this a step further into the delicate and contested arena of religion? Surely here, if anywhere, there would be irreconcilable differences. Jewish monotheists could not subscribe to polytheistic beliefs, practices, and would thus uh, risk, if they didn't uh, express these traditions, they would risk displacement, marginalization, or even persecution. So you might think, but the facts on the ground beg to differ. Jewish customs, like Sabbath observance, dietary laws, circumcision, these evoked puzzlement among the Gentiles, sometimes evoked mockery and derision, but they did not produce pogroms. The worship of Yahweh was greeted largely with indifference or at worst, amused forbearance. This held true even at the highest level, emperor worship. Now, emperor worship constituted a key element in the solidarity of the Roman Empire. Adherence to the imperial cult represented a critical symbol of allegiance to the regime. Now, the Jews, of course, however loyal they might be on other criteria, could not engage in worship of the emperor. So how far were Jews willing to bend? And how far were the Roman authorities willing to tolerate deviance on this score? Well, they reached a nice solution on this issue. Jews could not make sacrifice to the emperor, but they were perfectly happy to sacrifice to Yahweh on behalf of the emperor. That was a nice compromise and it worked and it endured. Now to be sure there could be the occasional bump in the road, the emperor Caligula insisted on direct worship of himself and thus stirred up a hornet's nest. But Caligula, as we all know, was a nutcase or at best, he was a diabolical, practical joker. Fact is that this particular crisis passed and there was no other 
repetition of it. And this exceptional episode should not define the generally smooth and untroubled relationship between Jewish communities and the throne. But we need to get below the level of the imperial majesty and official public policy. Can we get to the ordinary members of Jewish communities in the cities and the principalities of the Greco-Roman world? What about potential or actual strains between adherence of Jewish ritual and custom and the expectations of pagan society? Here we don't have much official documentation and we don't have much in the way of literary text. But the testimony of inscriptions, whether funerary epitaphs or private dedications or lists of donors to institutions these provide valuable, sometimes quite surprising insight into the experience of the humbler members of society. Let me mention a few evocative examples. From the town of Oropus in central Greece, we have a fascinating dedication from the third century BCE, dedication by a certain Moskos who was commemorating his manumission and giving thanks to the Greek god Amphiarios. And there Moscus uh, on this inscription records a dream that he had had. It was sent to him by Amphiarios, the god, and by uh, Hygieia, the Greek goddess of health. And they instructed him to set up a stele at the altar of Amphiarios as the overseer of his emancipation. Moscow, Moscos does this, but he identifies himself as Moscos Eudaios, Moscos the Jew. Now a votive declar a dedication by a Jew to pagan divinities without any evident uh, embarrassment or qualification, indeed quite unselfconscious, that certainly deserves notice. Moscos appealed to the protective authority of the pagan shrine to guarantee the endurance of his new status as a freedman. But he openly declares himself a Jew. So that homage to pagan gods did not entail abandoning his identification with the broader Jewish community. Take another example from the city of Iasos in Asia Minor, sometime during the Hellenistic period. We have a list of donors who contributed to a festival of Dionysus in that city. And among the benefactors listed in that, in that inscription was a certain Niketas, son of Jason from Jerusalem. Although he's not explicitly designated as a Jew, Jason is a common Jewish name in the Hellenistic period. And the fact that he's from Jerusalem surely clinches the matter. Jewish contributors to a pagan ceremony in a Greek city evidently didn't raise any eyebrow. Now it's instructive to look at this from the other side as well. That is, we have inscriptions that record patronage and gifts that were accorded by pagan benefactors to Jewish synagogue, either for building a courtyard or adding a roof or repairing a structure or even endowing a, uh, an entire synagogue. 
And it's interesting to know this, that the, the synagogue inscriptions that pay tribute to the donors do so by awarding them a golden crown and a special seat of honor. Those are precisely the kind of reciprocal benefactions and expressions of gratitude that were commonly found in pagan inscriptions. So the Jews fitted in perfectly with the social conventions that were long established in the Greek cities of the Hellenistic and Roman worlds. Practices which they mirrored. And one can go further into a different realm of social and religious life. We're fortunate in possessing a number of relevant inscriptions that attest to the manumission of slaves. They begin already in the Hellenistic period. At Delphi, seat of the Delphic Oracle, a certain Eudaios emancipated his slave. Jews did have slaves in those days. Emancipated his slave in standard Hellenic fashion through fictitious sale to the god Apollo. This is probably the late second or early first century BCE. So here again, adaptation to Greek practice, it seems quite comfortable, quite smooth. The recourse to Apollo, perfectly natural. The Jewish manumitor chose to liberate his slave in a pagan shrine under the aegis of a pagan god. And even more tellingly, we have a manumission document from the Black Sea region, dated explicitly to 41 CE, in which the emancipator, emancipator invokes Theos Hypsistos, God the highest. Now that invocation frequently appears in Jewish inscriptions with reference to Yahweh. And the slave here is freed in the synagogue. But the slave owner, who's obviously a Jew, accompanies his freeing of the slave with the assertion that the new freedman will now come under the protection of Zeus, earth, and sun. So evidently the dedicator found no strain or tension between appealing to the Jewish God on the one hand and calling at the same time upon the protection of Zeus, earth, and sun on the other. A comfortable application of divine powers as framed by Gentiles. So that even in the sphere of religion, Jews did not stand altogether as a caste apart. They were neither excluded by the majority culture, nor did they segregate themselves to remain untainted by the, that majority culture. And one can make this point perhaps even more compellingly by looking at it from the reverse angle. By that I mean that not only did Jews gain access to and have association with Gentile religious practices, but Gentiles also sought and obtained a relationship with Jewish religious practices. There was a large number, we don't, can't estimate the, precisely, but there were a large number of non-Jews who found Judaism enticing. And we can no longer recover the reasons for this. And they doubtless varied from place to place and person to person. But the fact of Gentiles entering into Jewish society is incontrovertible. This didn't require conversion, didn't require an abandonment of previous identity and associations. 
might take the form of uh, imitating the Jewish way of life, like observing the Sabbath or adopting certain codes of behavior or taking part in a synagogue activities or providing, as we know, material support for the Jewish community. The Jews certainly didn't turn such people away. So that we've got both the Jewish entrance into pagan society and vice versa in certain ways. So let me conclude here. Um, our data, as I've emphasized more than once, are scanty. We can't be confident how far they are representative of Jewish life throughout the diaspora. They come from or they refer to a variety of locations, a variety of circumstances, a variety of periods, and they're still even with what we have, it's too few instances to discern real changes over time or to make inferences and extrapolations from this small sample that would be hazardous. But I hope that I provided at least sufficient instances and argument to challenge the standard lacrimose picture of Jews cut off from their roots, displaced and dispersed, languishing in an exile that they were longing to leave never accommodating to the conditions of subordination or marginalization, that picture clearly needs serious qualification, if not abandonment. But this shift in perspective needs to be understood in a broader context. I don't want to suggest that diaspora Jews were altogether secure and unassailable in Greco-Roman city. So I end now on a somewhat more somber note. The very openness with which Jews practice their unique customs and display their distinctiveness also rendered them conspicuous and occasionally vulnerable. When individual circumstances or contingent events seemed to threaten the stability of the community and demanded some state action Jews could serve as useful targets. Now there were rare outbursts of violence, which I don't want to sweep under the rug, but I do want to insist that they were quite exceptional, should not be taken as representative, as representative of the diaspora existence. Nevertheless, it would be hard to deny that even those few disturbing episodes left a mark. And that many Jews, however comfortable their setting may have been, lived with a certain wariness, an unspoken sense that that comfort might not last. There's a curious paradox, and I'll end with this, curious paradox that lay at the root of all this. The more the Jews became an integral part of the broader cultural milieu, the greater the need they may have felt to maintain their own traditions and observances in order to assert the distinctiveness of their own identity. It was a source of pride, but it could also be a risk and a hazard. Through most of the time, this commitment was uh, to, to their own singularity provoked nothing more than maybe amusement or irritation. The Jews were left untroubled. But in periods of crisis, 
whether political upheaval or regional conflict, local tensions can become intensified and cultural differences, although they may have usually been ignored or just scorned, take on sudden relevance. The outsider becomes more obvious, an easier object for scapegoating. So that the Jews' very insistence upon their special attributes and mores gave them a firmer sense of self-esteem. But it also meant that when crises came, they were readily identifiable as prospective victims. So in short, diaspora experience for the Jews was predominantly stable, untroubled, and productive. But the prospect of potential disruption could never fully vanish. That even in the sunniest of times, that dark cloud hovered somewhere on the horizon. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Professor Gruen, for giving us such a wonderful and thought-provoking talk. I'd like to invite everyone to write your questions in the chat, and I will read them to Professor Gruen. So as you do that, and I particularly invite the students in Art History 321 to write their questions. I know Professor Groom would love to hear from you, as I would, um, and everyone else as well, of course, uh, too. So one of the questions that I think that um, students would really be interested in learning more about um, is why you think it is important to include the study of Jews in studies of Greece and Rome? Well, <laughs> that's a pretty challenging question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in many uh, universities in this country and abroad, I think particularly abroad, in the last generation or so, have been including Jews in their study of the ancient world. Uh, even if the principal uh, objective is to talk about Greeks and Romans, in part because um, the Jews, as I tried to point out today, were an integral part of that world, were contributors to that world, even in, from their own particular vantage point, their own perspective and their own uh, goals, were an integral part of that world who produced works of lasting significance and um, who, about whom, and this I think is the, is the main reason, about whom we do know a fair amount, not just about their past, but about their lives, however uh, fragmentary in the Greco-Roman period. We don't know anywhere near as much about any other people. We don't have, there was no Josephus for Gaul or, or for the uh, North Africans or for the Germans in the Greco-Roman period. We have the material there, enough material to sink our teeth into, to get a sense of how they lived and what their experiences were, what their relationships were uh, to that larger world as well as uh, to their own particular societies. So, it's in part a practical matter 
that we've got the material and we can actually draw some conclusions, however tentative, um, that we don't have, I wish we did. I wish the Gauls had had a, a Josephus sort, a person Genderic, say, wrote about their history um, and their experiences, which we don't have. We have them only from the point of view. We have the other nations of that world only from the point of view of the victors and the dominant uh, masters. But from the Jews, we've got some of their own um, projections, some of their own uh, understandings of themselves and of their relation to that larger community. So it's profitable. To, we don't. We can't extrapolate from the Jewish experience of that of anybody else although there doubtless were some overlappings and comparisons and parallels. Um, but we can uh, get a grasp of that kind of uh, experience and perhaps get a sense of how it might have been for other peoples as well under the Roman Empire. Thanks very much. We have a lot of questions now um, in the chat. So I will uh, start reading them to you. Uh, one of our graduate students has a question. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Gruen. I have a question. If Jews were not as marginalized as popular belief would suggest, then why were Christians so publicly persecuted? Was it because of their Swiss mass conversions? Um, if I understand the question, um, why were Christians persecuted because of their, uh, I'm not quite sure how that relates to their conversion, I mean, their, con their conversion of the Jews to Christians. Um, I'm more than eager to answer that question, but I want to get, be sure I have it straight. If, 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 if you'd like to, uh, the person who wrote the question, if you'd like to clarify that, that uh, and, and follow up, um, we can go to the next one if 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 you would not. Um, let's see here. Um, it's it's very tricky to read the chat as uh, as people are writing in, so I apologize. Um, would it be fair to say that the diaspora exists more today between our integration of Jews and histories than it existed within the Greco-Roman world in time? Well. The diaspora certainly does exist today, and the, the, it's similar in the sense that the numbers of Jews in the diaspora is much larger than the number of Jews in uh, Israel itself, so that that parallel exists. And also, the, there are numerous parallels. Um, the matters that I touched upon of, of uh, Jews in the diaspora sending um, tribute to the temple in Jerusalem and going there on pilgrimages in a way raises the same kind of a question of what is the relationship of diaspora Jews in the United States or in France where it's the largest community in Europe uh, or elsewhere what is their relationship to Israel and if we can extrapolate it all from present circumstances those relationships vary from place to place and individual to individual and there's a whole range of, of um, connections or lack of connections, sometimes causing great strain, as they do now, and sometimes 
um, engendering the kind of traditional and deep-rooted loyalties that some people feel uh, to their faith that is represented in Israel. Others feel that Israel is in some ways, or at least its public policies in many cases, uh, in violation of Jewish traditions. That kind of tension exists now. We don't have that explicit evidence in antiquity, though it would not surprise me at all if there were the similar sorts of variations in attitudes, some quite um, uh, loyal to, uh, to uh, Palestine at the time and others who had absolutely completely indifferent to it or even hostile to it. We don't have that evidence, but I think it would be surprising if it were not similar to what's happening today. You know, the old adage is if you have two Jews in a room, you automatically have three opinions and must have held in antiquity as well, uh, the variety of reactions, attitudes, and um, connections and associations uh, defy any sense of trying to make it a, a uniform pattern. Thanks. Um, we have a question from one of our PhD students. Were there any reactions outside of Judea to the Maccabean revolt? Do we know if this affected views of Jews in the wider Hellenistic world? That is an excellent question. Um, we don't have any reason to believe, or there's certainly no evidence. We have, at least for the Maccabean revolt and its consequences and, its, uh, and what followed from it, we have a fair amount of information, much more so than we do on many other periods of Jewish history. There is no sense in which diaspora Jews were involved in this at all, that they had any opinions about it, that they uh, moved from their diaspora settings to, to serve in the Maccabean armies. We have no indication of any of that. This was a purely internal contest in uh, uh, Palestine uh, between, not just between the Jews of the Maccabean and led by the Maccabees against their Seleucid overlords, but even more interesting and, and less noticed, internal squabbles among the Jews. A lot of the, one has to remember that the Maccabees themselves were a new family, of, at least a, family, a new family in authority in the area. And they had lots of rivals and competitors. And a lot of the squabbles and contests that took place were not just a matter of the Maccabees facing the Seleucids, not just a matter of Jews being liberating themselves from their hostile Hellenistic masters, but a whole range of internal conflicts and uh, uh, open dissent that occurred within the society. So that if you were in the diaspora, you were in Alexandria or Antioch, or if you were in Rome, you wouldn't have been aware remember that the communications were much slower in those days than they are now, you wouldn't have been aware of the nuances and the difficulties that were going on in, uh, in Palestine at the time. So that they could compare that, not that the, the students compared, the students raised an extremely important question, um, but to compare this as some people have with the situation, say in the 1967 war in Israel, in which a great many people, a great many Jews from the diaspora did 
moved to Israel, signed up and served in the armed forces against um, their enemies there. Uh, this parallel didn't exist in antiquity. They didn't know what was going on. The communications were inadequate. And if they had known, they would know what side to be on. It wasn't a simply bifurcation of the good guys and the bad guys. So um, that I think helps explain why there wasn't any diaspora involvement in it. And it's interesting that the, when there was a diaspora revolt much later in the time of uh, Trajan in various parts of um, the ancient world, there was no involvement by the people of uh, it, what is now Israel in the diaspora revolts. And when the Jews revolted in 70, 66 to 70 against the Romans, there were also no involvement by the diaspora. And I think, as I say, a large part of that has to do they really were not in the know and couldn't be. Thanks. I want to convey, I know I'm the only one who can see the chat right now, Professor Gruen can't, so I want to convey there are many, many uh, messages of appreciation uh, for this wonderful lecture. So I wanted to, to convey that to him. Um, we have a question from an undergraduate in our ancient Jewish art and architecture class. Is there any evidence of Jewish people holding positions of power in any Greco-Roman cities? Well, um, yes, <laughs> not much, but yes. We know in the Ptolemaic kingdom in Egypt that in certain periods, Jews rose to positions of great power in the court of the Ptolemies. Just exactly what their duties were, what their responsibilities were, what they carried out, we aren't aware of. But we do know of uh, Jews like Dosithius and Onias who became part of the uh, Ptolemaic um, officialdom. Now, was this representative or was it unusual? Is a little hard to say. Um, we don't have comparable evidence that we have uh, in uh, for some of these matters that, that we have in Ptolemaic Egypt, but it shows that in principle that was not out of the question. And uh, as I said uh, in the talk, though we don't have the specific evidence of what their uh, duties were or what their privileges were in full, there's a fair amount of evidence that Jews were politi in certain cities, were citizens of some sort, did participate in the civic activities, whether they held high official positions in this, uh, in any one of these communities is very difficult to say. But when we got these papyri from Heracleopolis, it showed Jewish officials, Jewish judges, exercising judgment on disputes between Jews and Gentiles, it suggests a position of authority and a position of responsibility that was allotted to them, even though they were Jews, despite the fact that they were Jews, uh, in which they could exercise authority over Gentiles by making decisions on those disputes between them. So, as I've said, more than once today, and probably will say it forever. Um, we haven't got enough to know absolutely about the, all the details, but these little bits and pieces give us an indication of what could happen in certain communities and might well have happened in others. So that the appointment by the Ptolemies of certain Jews to high officialdom may not be a unique experience. 
Thanks. We have a question from a faculty member, um, Professor Green. Thank you, Professor Gruen. I agree that most Jews everywhere, including Judea, were quite Hellenized in their daily lives. Would you say also that we don't really see distinct problems until Constantine and the laws promulgated against marriage and trade? Hi, Debbie. Thank you for that question. Um, I think that the uh, there were occasions, as I indicated toward the end of the talk, there were occasions when Jews did suffer uh, persecution. Didn't have to wait until uh, uh, Christianity became the uh, ruling uh, medium in the in the empire. There was a particularly upsetting time in in Alexandria, actually, um, uh, when what sometimes called a pogrom in which there were actual persecutions of Jews. And this, there, this occurred in certain other cities at certain other times. So it, uh, it did exist in this period that I've been talking about. I've been talking mostly about what we call the second temple period um, up until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70. So it did occur at times, but it was rare. And when it occurred, it was very specific to circumstances within a particular city or a community, as in this program in Alexandria in 38 CE, where the a combination of conflicts between Greeks in the city and native Egyptians in the city turned upon the Jews um, for reasons of individual civic privileges that were being contested in that city at the time. And it was also furthered by the Roman prefect of Egypt, whose uh, uh, location was in Alexandria, who had his own particular motives to try to uh, either spur this uh, insurrection or, or uh, curb it that caused even further violence. We happen to know a fair amount about this from Philo because he was present at the time. We don't have that kind of information uh, to that, on that scale elsewhere, but on this basis, it shows how complicated the situation was. It was not an anti-Semitic uh, uprising by any means. It involved uh, the contest for um, uh, access to certain privileges and involved deep-rooted hostilities between Greeks and Egyptians in that city that well preceded any Jewish problem there. And the Jews got caught in the middle of it to some degree. I don't want to go into detail, but um, it shows how complicated, how involved a, dis a situation emerged from there so that it cannot be used as it so often is by people as the prime example of ancient anti-Semitism, uh, which it was not at all. It had everything to do with contingent events there and peculiar circumstances. And it was very exceptional on any count. So the, your general um, notion here that there wasn't any real persecution until Constantine is, is I think, basically true, uh, even though there were some exceptions to it. Thanks. We have another question, this time from a professor outside of the UO, Professor Barringer. Do we have a sense of the role of Jewish women in antiquity? 
In other words, was their status or activity different from those of non-Jews? Thank you, Judy, for that question. Thank you for being here. Um, hi. Uh, we know so little about the uh, Jewish women in the diaspora that it is frustrating, uh, extremely frustrating. Uh, there have been arguments to try to extrapolate from some of the Jewish writings in this period, like the book of Judith, to suggest that maybe there were areas in which uh, Jewish women could exercise some real authority, could play a significant role. Uh, but we are dependent upon this kind of indirect testimony. Uh, what we do have in certain instances, maybe surprisingly, uh, I had mentioned that there were uh, pagan donors to Jewish synagogues. And one at least of these pagan donors was a woman, now, not a Jew, but a, a pagan, but nevertheless a, a, a Jewess who was a, a pagan uh, woman who was uh, intimately involved in synagogue activities and who was sufficiently uh, impressed by them so as to maintain, uh, to, to give a substantial endowment for the purchase of this Jewish synagogue. Uh, this was in Asia Minor. And that may, uh, doubtless was not a, uh, a, the sole occasion for such a thing, but the actual activities of women in uh, this period in the uh, Jewish communities in the diaspora, we just don't have it. But thanks for the question. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you very much, Professor Gruen, for your wonderful talk and for answering all of our questions that we've had today. And thanks everyone for coming. I'd like to let everyone know that our next lecture in the series will take place on Monday at 10 a.m. And that will be by Jody Magnus. And she will talk to us about her excavations in Israel. So thank you very much, Professor Gruen. And thanks everyone else for coming. Thank you very much, Chris. And Thanks for mentioning Jody Magnus because I encourage everybody to go and hear her. She is wonderful. But thank you for inviting me. I had a very good time and thank you for all the very fine questions that you've posed. <laughs>